Section 10 of The Tomb of Tutankhamun. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Abahi in July 2019. The Tomb of Tutankhamun by Howard Carter. Chapter 7 A Survey of the Antechamber. In this chapter we propose to make a detailed survey of the objects in the antechamber, and it will give the reader a better idea of things if we make it systematically, and do not range backwards and forwards from one end of it to the other, as in the first excitement of discovery we naturally did. It was but a small room, some twenty-six feet by twelve feet, and we had to tread warily, for, though the officials had cleared for us a small alleyway in the centre, a single false step or hasty movement would have inflicted irreparable damage on one of the delicate objects with which we were surrounded. In front of us, in the doorway, we had to step over it to get into the chamber, laid a beautiful wishing-cup shown on plate 46. It was of pure semi-translucent alabaster, with lotus-flower handles on either side, supporting the kneeling figures which symbolize eternity. Turning right as we entered, we noticed, first, a large cylindrical jar of alabaster, next two funerary bouquets of leaves, one leaning against a wall, the other fallen, and in front of them, standing out into the chamber, a painted wooden casket, see plate 21. This last will probably rank as one of the greatest artistic treasures of the tomb, and on our first visit we found it hard to tear ourselves away from it. Its outer face was completely covered with gesso. Upon this prepared surface there were a series of brilliantly coloured and exquisitely painted designs, hunting scenes upon the curved panels of the lid, battle scenes upon the sides, and upon the ends representations of the king in lion form, trampling his enemies under his feet. The illustrations on plates 50 to 54 give but a faint idea of the delicacy of the painting, which far surpasses anything of the kind that Egypt has yet produced. No photograph could do it justice, for even in the original a magnifying glass is essential to a due appreciation of the smaller details, such as the stippling of the lion's coats or the decoration of the horse's trappings. There is another remarkable thing about the painted scenes upon this box. The motives are Egyptian, and the treatment Egyptian, and yet they leave an impression on your mind of something strangely non-Egyptian, and you cannot for the life of you explain exactly where the difference lies. They remind you of other things, too, the finest Persian miniatures, for instance, and there is a curious floating impression of Benozzo Gozzoli, due, maybe, to the gay little tufts of flowers which fill the vacant spaces. The contents of the box were a queer jumble. At the top there were a pair of rush and papyrus sandals, and a royal robe, completely covered with a decoration of beadwork and gold sequins. Beneath them were other decorated robes, one of which had had attached to it upwards of three thousand gold rosettes. Three pairs of cord sandals elaborately worked in gold, a gilt headrest, and other miscellaneous objects. This was the first box we opened, and the ill-assorted nature of its contents, to say nothing of the manner in which they were crushed and bundled together, was a considerable puzzle to us. 
The reason of it became plain enough later, as we shall show in the following chapter. Next, omitting some small unimportant objects, we came to the end, north wall of the chamber. Here was the tantalizing sealed doorway, and on either side of it, mounting guard over the entrance, stood the life-size wooden statues of the king already described. Strange and imposing figures these, even as we first saw them, surrounded and half concealed by other objects, as they stand now in the empty chamber, with nothing in front of them to distract the eye, and beyond them, through the opened door, the golden shrine half visible, they present an appearance that is almost painfully impressive. Originally they were shrouded in shawls of linen, and this too must have added to the effect. One other point about this end wall, and an interesting one, unlike the other walls of the chamber, its whole surface was covered with plaster, and a close examination revealed the fact that from top to bottom it was but a blind, a mere partition wall. Turning now to the long west wall of the chamber, we found the whole of the wall space occupied by the three great animal-sided couches, curious pieces of furniture which we knew from illustrations in the tomb paintings, but of which we had never seen actual examples before. The first was lion-headed, the second cow-headed, and the third had the head of a composite animal, half hippopotamus and half crocodile. Each was made in four pieces for convenience in carrying, the frame of the actual bed fitting by means of hook and staple to the animal sides, the feet of the animals themselves fitting into an open pedestal. As is usually the case in Egyptian beds, each had a foot panel, but nothing at the head. Above, below, and around these couches, packed tightly together, and in some cases perched precariously one upon another, was a miscellany of smaller objects, of which we shall only have space here to mention the more important. Thus, resting on the northernmost of the couches, the lion-headed one, there was a bed of ebony and woven cord, with a panel of household gods delightfully carved, and, resting upon this again, there were a collection of elaborately decorated staves, a quiverful of arrows, and a number of compound bows. One of these last was cased with gold and decorated with bands of inscription and animal motifs in granulated work of almost inconceivable fineness, a masterpiece of jeweler's craft. Another, a double compound bow, terminated at either end in the carved figure of a captive, so arranged that their necks served as notches for the string, the pleasing idea being that every time the king used the bow, he bowstrung a brace of captives. Between bed and couch there were four torch-holders of bronze and gold, absolutely new in type, one with its torch of twisted linen still in position in the oil-cup, a charmingly wrought alabaster libation vase, and, its lid resting askew, a casket, with decorative panels of brilliant turquoise-blue faience and gold. This casket, as we found later in the laboratory, contained a number of interesting and valuable objects, among others a leopard-skin priestly robe with decoration of gold and silver stars and gilt leopard head inlaid with colored glass, a very large and beautifully worked scarab of gold and lapis lazuli blue glass, 
a buckle of sheet gold with a decoration of hunting scenes applied in infinitesimally small granules, a sceptre in solid gold and lapis lazuli glass, plate 23, beautifully coloured collarettes and necklaces of faience, and a handful of massive gold rings twisted up in a fold of linen, of which more anon. Beneath the couch, resting on the floor, stood a large chest, made of a delightful combination of ebony, ivory, and red wood, which contained a number of small vases of alabaster and glass, two black wooden shrines, each containing the gilt figure of a snake, emblem and standard of the tenth gnome of Upper Egypt, Aphroditopolis, a delightful little chair with decorative panels of ebony, ivory, and gold, too small for other than a child's use, two folding duck-stools inlaid with ivory, and an alabaster box with incised ornamentation filled in with pigments. A long box of ebony and white-painted wood, with trellis-worked stand and hinged lid, stood free upon the floor in front of the couch. Its contents were a curious mixture. At the top, crumpled together and stuffed in as packing, there were shirts and a number of the king's undergarments, whereas below, more or less orderly arranged upon the bottom of the box, there were sticks, bows, and a large number of arrows, the points of these last having all been broken off and stolen for their metal. As originally deposited, the box probably contained nothing but sticks, bows, and arrows, and included not only those from the top of the bed already described, but a number of others which had been scattered in various quarters of the chamber. Some of the sticks were of very remarkable workmanship. One terminated in a curve, on which were fashioned the figures of a pair of captives, with tied arms and interlocked feet, the one an African, the other an Asiatic, their faces carved in ebony and ivory respectively. The latter figure, an almost painfully realistic piece of work, is shown on plate 70. On another of the sticks a very effective decoration was contrived by arranging minute scales of iridescent beetle wings in a pattern, while in others again there was an applied pattern of variegated barks. With the sticks there were a whip in ivory and four cubit measures. To the left of the couch, between it and the next one, there were a toilet table and a cluster of wonderful perfume jars in carved alabaster. See plate 22. So much for the first couch. The second, the cow-headed one, facing us as we entered the chamber, was even more crowded. Resting precariously on top of it, there was another bed of wood, painted white, and, balanced on top of this again, a rushwork chair, extraordinarily modern-looking in appearance and design, and an ebony and redwood stool. Below the bed, and resting actually on the framework of the couch, there were, among other things, an ornamental white stool, a curious rounded box of ivory and ebony veneer, and a pair of gilt sistra, instruments of music that are usually associated with Hathor, the goddess of joy and dancing. Plate 23. Footnote. These are two of the attributes of Hathor. There are many others. End footnote. Below, the center space was occupied by a pile of oviform wooden cases, containing trussed ducks and a variety of other food offerings. 
Standing on the floor in front of the couch, there were two wooden boxes, one having a collarette and a pad of rings resting loose upon its lid, a large stool of rushwork and a smaller one of wood and reed. The larger of the two boxes had an interesting and varied list of contents. A docket, written in hieratic on the lid, quotes seventeen objects of lapis lazuli blue, and within there were sixteen libation vases of blue faience, the seventeenth being found subsequently in another part of the chamber. In addition, thrown carelessly in, there were a number of other faience cups, a pair of electrum boomerangs mounted at either end with blue faience, a beautiful little casket of carved ivory, a calcite wine strainer, a very elaborate tapestry woven garment, and the greater part of a corslet. This last, which we shall have occasion to describe at some length in chapter 10, was composed of several thousand pieces of gold, glass, and faience, and there is no doubt that when it has been cleaned and its various parts assembled, it will be the most imposing thing of its kind that Egypt has ever produced. Between this couch and the third one, tilted carelessly over onto its side, lay a magnificent cedar-wood chair, elaborately and delicately carved, and embellished with gold. See plate 60. We now come to the third couch, flanked by its pair of queer composite animals, with open mouths and teeth and tongue of ivory. Resting on top of it, in solitary state, there was a large, round-topped chest, with ebony frame and panels painted white. This was originally the chest of underlinen. It still contained a number of garments, loincloths, etc., most of them folded and rolled into neat bundles. Footnote. These, on our first entrance into the tomb, were mistaken for rolls of papyrus. End footnote. Below this couch stood another of the great artistic treasures of the tomb, perhaps the greatest so far taken out, a throne, overlaid with gold from top to bottom, and richly adorned with glass, faience, and stone inlay. See plate 24. Its legs, fashioned in feline form, were surmounted by lion's heads, fascinating in their strength and simplicity. Magnificent crowned and winged serpents formed the arms, and between the bars which supported the back there were six protective cobras, carved in wood, gilt, and inlaid. It was the panel of the back, however, that was the chief glory of the throne, and I have no hesitation in claiming for it that it is the most beautiful thing that has yet been found in Egypt. A photograph, which without colour gives but a very inadequate idea of its beauty, is shown on plate two. The scene is one of the halls of the palace, a room decorated with flower-garlanded pillars, frieze of urei, royal cobras, and dado of conventional, recessed panelling. Through a hole in the roof the sun shoots down its life-giving protective rays. The king himself sits in an unconventional attitude upon a cushioned throne, his arm thrown carelessly across its back. Before him stands the girlish figure of the queen, putting, apparently, the last touches to his toilet. In one hand she holds a small jar of scent or ointment, and with the other she gently anoints his shoulder or adds a touch of perfume to his collar. 
a simple homely little composition, but how instinct with life and feeling it is, and with what a sense of movement. The colouring of the panel is extraordinarily vivid and effective. The face and other exposed portions of the bodies, both of king and queen, are of red glass, and the headdresses of brilliant turquoise-like faience. The robes are of silver, dulled by age to an exquisite bloom. The crowns, collars, scarves, and other ornamental details of the panel are all inlaid, inlay of coloured glass and faience, of carnelian and of a composition hitherto unknown, translucent fibrous calcite, underlaid with coloured paste, in appearance for all the world like milfiori glass. As background we have the sheet gold with which the throne was covered. In its original state, with gold and silver fresh and new, the throne must have been an absolutely dazzling sight. Too dazzling, probably, for the eye of a westerner, accustomed to drab skies and neutral tints. Now, toned down a little by the tarnishing of the alloy, it presents a colour scheme that is extraordinarily attractive and harmonious. Apart altogether from its artistic merit, the throne is an important historical document, the scenes upon it being actual illustrations of the politico-religious vacillations of the reign. In original conception, witness the human arms on the sun-disc in the back panel, they are based on pure Tel el Amarna Atun worship. The cartouches, however, are curiously mixed. In some of them the Atun element has been erased and the Amun form substituted, whereas in other the Atun remains unchallenged. It is curious, to say the least of it, that an object which bore such manifest signs of heresy upon it should be publicly buried in this, the stronghold of the Amun faith, and it is perhaps not without significance that on this particular part of the throne there were remains of a linen wrapping. It would appear that Tutankhamun's return to the ancient faith was not entirely a matter of conviction. He may have thought the throne too valuable a possession to destroy, and have kept it in one of the more private apartments of the palace. Or, again, it is possible that the alteration in the Atun names was sufficient to appease the sectarians, and that there was no need for secrecy. Upon the seat of the throne rested the footstool that originally stood before it, a stool of gilded wood and dark blue faience, with panels on the top and sides on which were represented captives, bound and prone, this was a very common convention in the East. Until I make thine enemies thy footstool, sings the psalmist, and we may be sure that on certain occasions convention became actual fact. Before the couch there were two stools, one of plain wood painted white, the other of ebony, ivory and gold, its legs carved in the shapes of duck's heads, its top made in the semblance of leopard skin with claws and spots of ivory, the finest example we know of its kind. Behind it, resting against the south wall of the chamber, there were a number of important objects. First came a shrine-shaped box with double doors, fastened by shooting bolts of ebony. This was entirely cased with thick sheet gold, and on the gold, in delicate low relief, there were a series of little panels, shown on plate 68, 
depicting, in delightfully naive fashion, a number of episodes in the daily life of king and queen. In all of these scenes the dominant note is that of friendly relationship between the husband and the wife, the unself-conscious friendliness that marks the Tel el Amarna school, and one would not be surprised to find that here, too, there had been a change in the cartouches from the Atun to the Amun. Within the shrine there was a pedestal, showing that it had originally contained a statuette. It may well have been a gold one, an object, unfortunately, too conspicuous for the plunderers to overlook. It also contained a necklace of enormous beads, gold carnelian, green feldspar and blue glass, to which was attached a large gold pendant in the shape of a very rare snake goddess, and considerable portions of the corslet already referred to in our description of one of the earlier boxes. Beside this shrine there was a large Shawapti statuette of the king, carved, gilded and painted, and a little farther along, peering out from behind the overturned body of a chariot, a statue of peculiar form, cut sharp off at waist and elbows. This was exactly life-size, and its body was painted white in evident imitation of a shirt. There can be very little doubt that it represents a mannequin to which the king's robes, and possibly his collars, could be fitted. Plate 25. There were also in this same quarter of the chamber another toilet box, and the scattered pieces of a gilt canopy or shrine. These last were of extremely light construction, and were made to fit rapidly one to another. The canopy was probably a travelling one, carried in the king's train wherever he went, and set up at a moment's notice to shield him from the sun. The rest of the south wall and the whole of the east, as far as the entrance doorway, were taken up by the parts of no fewer than four chariots. As the photograph shows, they were heaped together in terrible confusion, the plunderers having evidently turned them this way and that in their endeavours to secure the more valuable portions of the gold decoration which covered them. Theirs is not the whole responsibility, however. The entrance passage was far too narrow to admit the ingress of complete chariots, so, to enable them to get into the chamber, the axles were deliberately sawn in two, the wheels dismounted and piled together, and the dismembered bodies placed by themselves. In the reassembling and restoration of these chariots we have a prodigious task ahead of us, but the result will be gorgeous enough to justify any amount of time that is bestowed upon them. From top to bottom they are covered with gold, every inch of which is decorated, either with embossed patterns and scenes upon the gold itself, or with inlaid designs in coloured glass and stone. The actual woodwork of the chariots is in good condition and needs but little treatment, but with the horse trappings and other leather parts it is quite another story, the untanned leather having been affected by the damp and turned into a black, unpleasant-looking glue. Fortunately, these leather parts were, in almost every instance, plated with gold, and from this gold, which is well preserved, we hope to be able to make a reconstruction of the harness. Mixed with the chariot parts there were a number of miscellaneous smaller objects, including alabaster jars, more sticks and bows, bead sandals, baskets, and a set of four horsehair fly-whisks, 
with lion-head handles of gilded wood. We have now made a complete tour of the antechamber, a fairly comprehensive one, it seemed, and yet we find, by reference to our notes, that out of some six or seven hundred objects which it contained, we have mentioned a scant hundred. Nothing but a complete catalogue transcribed from our register cards would give an adequate idea of the extent of the discovery, and in the present volume that is naturally out of the question. We must confine ourselves here to a more or less summary description of the principal finds, and reserve a detailed study of the objects for later publications. It would be impossible in any case to attempt such an account at the present moment, for there are months, possibly years, of reconstructive work ahead of us, if the material is to be treated as it deserves. We must remember, too, that we have dealt so far with but a single chamber. There are inner chambers still untouched, and we hope to find among their contents treasures far surpassing those with which the present volume is concerned. End of section 10